All right. Kathy, if yes. we ranked people in terms of niceness on this podcast, what's your power ranking? Least most nice to least nice. Oh, I think Matt is the most nice. Easy. Yep. <laughs> and least nice? Is it you or me? Or you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I want to know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ask our listeners. Clay's an easy second. Yes, yes. So it's like Matt, Clay, and then it's like a toss and then it's like, up. It's a toss it's up. Like, it's... Just, I guess it's. You guys have to have a mean contest. <laughs> Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. I'm Matt Michelotis. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I'm Kathy Kong. This week, we're going to be tackling Jesus and John Wayne, um, an amazing book uh, by Dr. Kristen Dum- uh, Dumez. Dumay. Oh, oh my gosh. No. Let's yeah. start over. Okay, start over. This is what happens. When Take two. Eat. <clears throat> Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> See, that was nice, Kathy. You wanted to start over. Yeah. JR was like, let's just go. Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. I'm Matt Michelotis. I'm JR Foresteros. And I'm Kathy Kong. And this week on our show, we are going to be talking with Dr. Kristen Cobez Dumay and uh, her amazing, slightly disturbing need to do some self care after you read book. Jesus and John Wayne. Pew, 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 pew. That was my finger guns. Such a good book. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the interview, though, which is so good, and I cannot wait for y'all to hear it, but we've got to talk about the Utah monolith. Ooh. So by the time you're listening to this, uh, you already likely know that this turned out to have been some kind of art installation, probably. But uh, sure. illegal. Well, we know that it's not from aliens unless the aliens traveled. Okay, here's here we here we go. For those of you who don't know this story, uh some government officials aliens. Oh my <laughs> gosh, we're not friends anymore. Um some Utah state officials found a monolith embedded in the rock in the middle of nowhere in Utah. Like a metal like sheet like a column almost yes it was 10 to 12 feet tall uh it was embedded in the rock they didn't know how deep it deep it went into the rock they didn't think it was just there and it was like in the middle of nowhere so they didn't know how long it had been there uh anything uh for about five minutes we were all sure this was finally proof of aliens uh but then actually a person who was out there uh investigating it witnessed four men dismantle it and take it away so they knocked it over it turned out to have been made of like plywood um (laughs) on the inside like it was a hollow with a with a frame so this is my theory right i find it i find it uh difficult to believe that aliens would travel here using some sort of faster than light technology and then build a monolith out of plywood maybe they didn't have faster than light technology maybe it was a generation ship I still find it difficult to believe that if they could get here on a spaceship, they would they would use plywood. Plywood's like cheap and accessible. Not in the middle of the desert in Utah. 
I mean, they have a spaceship. They probably just pick it up yeah. at Home Depot and fly it over there. So we or didn't spot them make at Home the Depot. Okay, whatever. Well, have you been to Home Depot? Yeah. Um, I would definitely notice a generation ship parked outside. You think so? What if, they, what if they're shaped like Toyota Tundras? Or they were cloaked. Listen, yeah, listen. You know, if anyone, if anyone on the you podcast is going to be a true believer, it's me. And I'm just saying, this was a funny art installation. Someone probably wanted to be like the Banksy of the desert. Uh, now there's one in Romania. Uh, but I just... See how they, get, how they get over to Romania that fast. Yeah. Like, how did they make it to Romania in a week? They're, like, yeah. it's not possible. During a pandemic, JR. Yeah, like flights are so full, there's no way to get there. That's what I'm saying. Also, the four people who took it down, I'm not sure they're the people who put it up because the people who were there, the like reporters who talked about it, said that they were saying things like, leave no trace. Like they seemed kind of upset that someone had left the monolith there. Or they Maybe were trying the to get pe- away with it. So they said, leave no trace. So it looks like it appeared and then it vanished. See, or they were just government believer, workers. You're so skeptical. Yeah, I'm skeptical because I'm a true believer. That makes any sense. It absolutely makes sense. Like when they prove that crop circles are made with boards and rope, right? Yeah, plywood, right? It's all making sense. (laughs) It's all the aliens. It's people with plywood, not aliens with plywood. No. What if people are the aliens? Do you think of that? (laughs) What if people are the real aliens? Yeah. I am heartened to know that both of you are such fanatical uh, believers in aliens. Oh, I think we've discovered that taking the opposite view of you often makes us right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. Uh, well, our, our interview with Kristen went uh, very long today. So uh, yeah. we just wanted to touch base on this monolith in case it turns out to be aliens. And I'm wrong, which I'd love. It could have gone um, longer. I think we could have done a mini series just talking to Kristen. Oh, for sure, easily. Um, but now, speaking of phallic installations, why don't we talk oh, about no. evangelicalism? <laughs> what perfect segue? Is that the worst segue we've ever had? Perfect. It's a perfect segue. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, we want to welcome Kristen Cobes Dumay, who um, has uh, written this incredible, slightly disturbing book that is, slightly? I think, slightly, um, but incredibly important, I think, for those of us who've grown up in the church, are still part of the church, capital C. Um, and Kristen is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. That's how I'm going to say it. And her <laughs> research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. Mm-hmm. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, her most recent book, that which we are going to talk about, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, was published with W.W. Norton's Liberate Publishing in June 2020. She's written for the Washington Post Religious News Service, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Christian Century, The Daily Beast, and Religion and Politics. She's been interviewed on NPR's Morning Edition, CTV and the BBC. 
And uh, she's here joining us to talk about, oh my goodness, all sorts of amazing (laughs) things. I don't even know. I'm still, it's been like two weeks of having listened to the book, Kristen, and I'm still like, (laughs) in my heart. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very much looking forward to seeing where this conversation takes us. Well, before Uh, we dive into the book, Kristen, we always ask all of our guests, uh, what in general fascinates you in life besides toxic masculinity and evangelicalism? (laughs) You know, honestly, I've been fascinated for a long time with where our beliefs come from. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, and I thought it was pretty simple. You believe the Bible, maybe you study a little theology, and that's where your beliefs come from. And then I became a historian, and I became a cultural <laughs> historian, <laughs> and I realized it's a little more complicated. So, yeah, where, where do our ideas of truth, of beauty, of goodness come from? Where does our common sense come from? What really shapes us? Mm. Wow. Have you solved that yet? I'm working on it. <laughs> What's the next book, JR. Because I, I, yeah, I'm 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 ready to learn. I'm I'm here to receive. I yeah, know. yeah. You know, obviously, I I, I kind of explore uh, the role of culture, the role of culture in shaping beliefs, the things that we consume, the the music we listen to, the books we read, the the radio, all of that. You know, how the communities we find ourselves in, how does that really shape our 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 beliefs of of what is true and good? You know, growing up, my mom was worried because I read all of the Goosebumps books <laughs> that I would grow up to become a person who had no regard for other people and someone who didn't really embody the gospel of Jesus. So, I, you know, that's a risk, I, I guess, the Goosebumps yeah. series. Yes. Yeah. But but apparently, as long as I was not watching John Wayne movies, I was in a better better space, right? I think so. I think it's fair to say that. So I'm, I am genuinely curious in this book. I mean, the, the title is Jesus and John Wayne. Um, I love like just the process of bringing a book to life. And so I'm kind of curious, where did that framing mechanism um, present itself to you? Was that like, you know, you woke up one day and you were like, oh, I have a new idea for a book about Jesus and John Wayne. Was it halfway through the research? Was it, you know, when, like, when did it, when did it, when did it become clear? Like, this is the framework that this book needs. Yeah, I love this process question. I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne, never in my wildest (laughs) imagination. Uh, It came rather late in the process, actually, uh, as I was writing the manuscript. uh, I mean, well, early on, I noticed when I was reading these books on Christian masculinity, you know, for all their talk of being Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals who are writing on Christian manhood weren't very biblical. (laughs) They they were, you know, there's a few Bible verses scattered throughout, (laughs) taken out of context, but really they were looking to Hollywood movies. Uh, to uh, these kind of mythical warriors. Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart was was a favorite. I just couldn't quite work that into a title. Uh, but John it's not Wayne, as alliterative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. John Wayne just kept popping up. Uh, and I was like, really? You know, at, at first. And then I, I ended up just kind of pulling that thread through. Whenever I'd come across John Wayne in, in this literature, in, in you know, a mention here or there, I just kind of kept track. And I, and I put this all into the manuscript. And at a certain point, I, I contacted my editor and said, okay, look, 
I think I want to go with this as a title, but if not, you need to tell me because I need to start scrubbing all this job. <laughs> <names. laughs> There's a lot. And, and you know, I, I really thought it was a great handle that demonstrates kind of the tensions between sacred and secular, the influence of popular culture. And uh, I think it foreshadows really quite well what we came to see by 2016. Yeah, you know, uh, so I, uh, as I was reading the book, getting ready for the interview, I have, I have a, I'm part of the church in the Nazarene. And so we have a little like Nazarene pastors, Facebook group. Uh, and so I posted in there, I said, Hey, is anyone else reading this book? Because our, our denomination is, is a really a beautiful example of, and I say beautiful, what I mean is painful and horrible example of what you talk about in the introduction, even, which is that we have all of these ideas that we say we believe. And our denomination is egalitarian on paper. Uh, We've been ordaining women since the incorporation of our denomination back in the early 1900s. And yet we are a stridently complementarian uh, denomination in practice. And we have even a number of our ordained pastors who espouse unapologetically complementarian views, right? Yeah. So so I posted this, I posted, I said, hey, is anyone reading this? I think it's like such an insightful book about a lot of the tensions that we experience, even as a denomination, that, that even in this Facebook group, we talk about like over and over and over again. And uh, a good friend of the podcast, Rick Lee James, who's also a Nazarene pastor who's in the group, he said he had read it, one of his favorite books of 2020. And so I asked him, I said, hey, what, you know, what are some of your big takeaways? Because yeah, I'm still working my way through it. And he, and, and he, I mean, he, again, he gushed about it for a while. But then he said, for me, the biggest takeaway was that this uh, patriarchal approach to religion is a feature of evangelicalism, not a bug. Yes. Um, and then again, you have this, you have this great quote, uh, early in your introduction where you say evangelical support for Trump was not an aberration, nor was it merely a pragmatic choice. It was rather the culmination of evangelicals embrace of militant masculinity an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. And so I, I think, you know, we, in this podcast, you know, for the last four years, um, pundits, uh, both evangelicals and ex-evangelicals, everyone has spent so much time wringing our hands trying to explain how evangelicals could possibly have voted for Trump despite, you know, Jesus. <laughs> and yet you just kind of like cut the knee- cut that off at the knees and said, um, no, it's not despite Jesus. It's because of the kind of Jesus that evangelicals talk about. Again, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. And so I'm curious because you have been living in this space for so long. Um, I'm curious, like, what are the implications of this very um, foundational observation for sort of the future of evangelicalism? Yeah, first, thanks for a a really great summary of the essence of the book. I think you got (laughs) it all right there. Um, And that's exactly right. You know, in uh, the days leading up to the 2016 election and in the weeks and months that followed, there was so much chatter about, how could evangelicals betray their values? How could family values, Christians, support a man like Donald Trump? And if you know this history, uh, you know that family values don't necessarily mean what we might think they mean, right? That that this, <laughs> this kind of militant patriarchy is and has been at the heart of evangelical family values from the beginning, all right, from the 60s and 70s when these family values evangelicals mo- mobilized as a partisan political force 
uh, it was a reactionary movement and in, in many ways, and it did enshrine this white patriarchal power. And that's very clear from the historical evidence. And once you grasp that, you can trace it all the way through the decades up to the present moment. And then it is not a betrayal. And that makes <laughs> makes sense of what we've Mm -hmm. seen the last four years, right? We didn't see uh, regret. (laughs) We we didn't see, uh, okay, you know, we defeated Hillary Clinton, but now let's, let's get some work done here. Let's, you know, let's rein, rein the president in, or let's, let's critique this or that, right? The critics uh, that emerged after 2016, the election were those who were already critical before with very, very few exceptions. Uh, So we're not talking about a betrayal or a fluke. This isn't just hypocrisy. We are talking about a very close alignment of basic values. And that's really important to understand because uh, if we're going to try to extricate this at all, uh, we need to go deep. This is not just a, oh, some of us made a mistake. Let's let's get back on track. Uh, I think there are real implications for evangelical leaders and institutions, uh, even those who are maybe never Trumpers, but who have participated in building this culture, who have not held others to account. Uh, so the kind of respectable mainstream evangelicalism that has allowed this uh, these values to, to really develop or fester, if you will. Um, so I think there are a lot of implications. And frankly, it's, it's not a very heartening story because it means that where we find ourselves today is a very difficult place. Uh, these values, convictions are deeply embedded within evangelical culture and churches uh, and organizations. And it means that the path forward is going to be difficult and it's going to require a lot of courage and a lot of truth telling. Do you think that's going to be possible? <laughs> it's it's an interesting moment. It's uh, it, It's definitely a moment of fracture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been surprised by uh, the enthusiasm of evangelical readers themselves for this book. I absolutely did not expect that. Uh, not all evangelicals, of course, but <laughs> but many and and many people that I would not have anticipated. People who have who have been a part of this on the inside, uh, you know, in these conservative organizations, CBMW, you know, Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the Gospel Coalition, again, not unanimously supportive by any means, but there are a lot of people who helped make this, mm-hmm. uh, who are standing back now in a bit of shock and saying, you know, what has this become? Is this what we wanted? Is this what we meant? Uh, So it is a a moment of reckoning. That said, the status quo is very powerful. Uh, Mm -hmm. There is not a lot of courage that I'm seeing from a number of leaders and ordinary evangelicals, because to stand against this means to risk a lot. It means to risk your job in many cases, to risk relationships, to rock the boat, to be disruptive, to to be perceived as not nice. And so, uh, right right now, there isn't a lot of courage. There's there's courage coming from some unusual places, some surprising places, but there's still is a lot of caution. It's incredibly ironic given the the language of what it means to be a man exactly. in evangelicalism for decades. Exactly. Grow up hair, right? Courage, inability to tell truth, 
uh, not being able to take the consequences of standing up for what is right. Like all these things are so difficult all of a sudden. Exactly. What I came to see is just how kind of this culture works. Uh, and what struck me early on in my research that I wasn't expecting to find was this huge emphasis on authority and on deference to God-appointed authorities. Uh, and there's a very clear line in terms of gender. So women must uh, submit to the authority of men, of their husbands and fathers, right? the patriarchy. Um, but there's also an authority that kind of structures from pastors to parishioners, mm -hmm. um, yes. from God-appointed political authorities. And then I, I just kind of saw how these networks ended up just working over the years of, uh, you know, you've got these conferences and you've got alliances and who's blurbing whose book and who's inviting whom to this, you know, uh, to join them on this platform, who gets to be called brother in Christ and, you know, a lot of backslapping and, and, and how does that work? And I see just how hard it is for people who are part of this, even as like very kind of on very low rungs of, of, of these power structures, how hard it is for them to um, to reject uh, access to power, how hard it is for them to risk offending somebody who has more power than them. And I just watched this play out over the years, right? Reading the histories, seeing who was who was defending whom and to what ends. And somewhere along the way, I, I decided I will not show any deference to these powers. I, I absolutely will not. And I think that comes through quite clearly in uh, in the, the book itself, in the tone of the book, even in the title. Yeah. I, uh, man, I, I was telling you before the show started, I was reading last night several chapters and I was having a really hard time because my journey through evangelicalism has been one degree separated from many of the people you discuss in the book. Yeah. Uh, so there were times where I was like, oh, I know that person. Or I was like, <laughs> I know worse stories about yes. this person. Yes. And what you're sharing, like, I know firsthand some really bad things. Yeah. Um, it made me think about, my wife recently has told me, it's time to stop saying you're an evangelical. Mm -hmm. And what I keep pushing back on is like, no, 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 I match Bevington's quadrilateral, <laughs> right? Which is this <laughs> definitional, like, you have to believe certain things, and that's kind of the hallmarks. Um, but you, in the book, you kind of push back on that as a definition of evangelicalism. And we've got a quote here that I'll read. It says, for conservative white evangelicals, the good news of the Christian gospel has become inextricably linked to a staunch commitment to patriarchal authority gender difference and Christian nationalism. And all of these are intertwined with white racial identity, which I was reading that and I was like, well, okay, what definition of evangelicals? <laughs> like, I don't match that one, I hope. Um, so t tell us a little bit about that. Do you, do you see this um, as definitional to evangelicalism at this point? Uh, that's a, a good question. And I get to be a history nerd here for just a little bit and <laughs> talk about some of these debates. Uh, so it's perfectly fine if you want to, you know, argue for a definition of evangelical that is um, lovelier than the one that I, I have come, <laughs> come down to. Uh, if you want to use the Bevington quadrilateral, which is really a kind of belief-based definition. So an evangelical is somebody who upholds the authority of the scriptures, uh, who centers conversionism, right, the atonement of Christ, and, uh, and then acts out of that in, in um, kind of activism. 
Right. That's the Bebbington quadrilateral for, for your listeners who may not be familiar with that. Uh, and this is the self-definition of many evangelical leaders. This is what you'll find on the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, which is fine. And if you want to say, I, I hold to those things and I want to reclaim kind of the image of evangelicalism, that it is not, you know, white racists or white supremacists. Christian, and- I feel like you're working really hard to spare my feelings. Oh, just wait. <laughs> 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 really okay. <laughs> now, you know, honestly, like, that's fine. Uh, if, if people of color, right, want to say that I'm an evangelical, I want to claim that, you know, more power to them. I'm a historian. And so I'm more interested in describing what I see. Uh, and, and the shape that I've seen uh, white evangelicalism take over the last half century. And I think it's important to use that, that adjective white, uh, because it is um, simply descriptive that white evangelicalism has, for the most part, been its own tradition. It has not had much interaction with um, a, you know, Black Protestantism or Black quote-unquote evangelicalism, if you will. Now, let me quick say that uh, the vast majority of Black Protestants who would qualify as evangelical under the Bebbington Quadrilateral do not identify as evangelical. And that's really important to me, the self-identification. What is it about evangelicalism that they have been seeing long before 2016 that says, no, that's not who I am? Yes. Right. And so I want to go, I want to go beneath the Bebbington quadrilateral. You're talking about authority of the scriptures. Great. Which passages really get airtime? And which ones totally don't? How are those interpreted, right? What what does activism look like for you? You know, um, po- anti-poverty activism, anti-racist no. activism, right? No. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> as a friend, I want to get into those details. Um, you know, who's in your church? Uh, is it a largely segregated uh, religious community? Uh, yes. Which books are you reading um, by only other white people? Okay, let's talk about that then. And, and that's really the, the white evangelicalism that I'm talking Talking about there are there are interactions with other um, faith communities, but by and large, it's a powerful and predominantly white uh, value system, white religious tradition. Uh, I, I want to go on a little journey, and I promise it comes back around. Um, so my my maternal grandfather loved Johnny Cash. That's that's like we literally played Johnny Cash songs at his funeral. I grew up in the suburbs in the nineties. Uh, so I was very anti country music. Uh, didn't understand it. Didn't get it at all. Uh, Rodney Clapp wrote a book called Johnny Cash and the great American contradiction, which is a terrific book. Uh, but, it, but he really uses, he basically reads American Christianity through the lens of not just Johnny Cash, but a lot of that sort of first wave country music, you know, Hank Williams, senior, uh, Willie Nelson, some of those guys. And he talks about how, like, sort of in the heart of this country music was this, you know, uh, I, and now it's become cliche, right? But it's at the at the bar on Saturday night and the pew on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of like deep contradiction, and and how it's in their albums, right? Like there'll be like a hard drinking cussing song, and then a gospel track next. Yeah, uh, and they just sit next to each other, and that was part and parcel of the genre. Um. So as I'm as I'm reading again, particularly just even in the introduction before we even get into the book, and you introduce John Wayne, who again I 
know very little about. Like I've seen a couple of John Wayne movies and that's it. But you talk about how, uh, you know, uh, early evangelicals rallied around John Wayne as this, uh, as this Christian figure where they were like insisting, by the way, side note, we need to come back and talk about how people who are not evangelical, evangelicals <laughs> try to make evangelical, yeah. <laughs> but then people who try to be so claim they're weird. evangelical, we say like, no, you're not allowed to be. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like, but he's not a moral, you know, not doesn't live according to what evangelicals recognize as moral in any way, doesn't have any interest in being associated with evangelicalism. And I couldn't help but hear echoes of Trump, right? And mm-hmm. not just because you had brought up Trump previously. So so I'm reading that and I'm hearing, you know, I'm, I'm remembering this sort of like other cowboy experience, which is the one of this like deep, like living in the middle of this deep well of contradiction, uh, but then how evangelicals have largely rejected that in favor of this m- mythicized, if I can make that word, like this mythicized kind of cowboy, right? Yeah, yeah. Where, where there is no contradiction. Exactly. Everything he does, even if it's anti-Jesus, is baptized. Exactly. That That's really um, the heart. The contradiction's gone. Yeah. So why <laughs> – and I, I know you address this as as the book goes on, but I wondered if just before we dive in specifically one of your chapters, you could address here a little bit, like why is it necessary but even attractive for a certain kind of Christianity or a certain kind of religiosity or a certain kind of faithfulness to cling to that uh, contradiction-free, myth-making kind of religion? Yeah, I mean, you can go into country music and you can find, you know, kind of rich materials for spiritual reflection, human broken human brokenness, right, and weakness and strength and and there's a lot to work with there. Um, but that's really not what we're seeing in terms of the way that this mythology is utilized by um, white evangelicals. This is um, not uh, we're all broken and uh, and limited and, you know, here we go, but for the grace of God. That's not what we're um, what we're seeing. And instead, it's, it's a, a very kind of flattened uh, uh us versus them, good guy versus bad guy. And of course, you put yourself on the side of righteousness and then uh, the ends will justify the means. Anything you do will be righteous. And, um, and then, and then it's, it's, this us versus them mentality, it's placed in, well, either the Cold War context or the war against radical Islam or the war against liberalism, or there's always this, this, this threat that must be defended against. And, and it's usually a military threat. Um, but again, it's, it's an all or nothing evil versus good, you know, right? God is on our side. And so violence is necessary because the world is evil and the threat is just so great. And God gives gave Christian men strength and aggression, and they must channel that, right? That is how this is being used. Uh, And I think it's in many ways, uh, I mean, it's, it's more fun to go along with this version. I think for many people, it's very empowering. It doesn't require you to reflect on your own 
uh, fallenness, on your own complicity, on your own weakness. Uh, it, it invites you to set aside any perceived weakness, to blame others for it, and really to just act um, in your own interest uh, to grasp that power and to call it good, to call it it righteousness. And so I think there's something really satisfying about it um, for people who maybe feel marginalized or um, feel like they don't have as much power as they ought to have. Um, for people who want purpose, it's it's a really attractive uh, kind of path. And it's, I'll, I'll just say I'm I'm a person of faith myself. I'm a Calvinist. I teach at Calvin University, uh, so we can fall back, you know, on on original sin if you want. There's something really tantalizing about this vision of power and of making yourself the 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 unapologetic hero of the story. Wow, I feel like I just need a lot of time to sit and just feel everything you're saying here, because I'm not manly, uh, mostly, but. I am not at all, <clears throat> nor am I white. So what? for me as a reader, it was so fascinating uh, because one, Kristen, I really appreciate the emphasis and the clarification, right? This is a white evangelicalism mm -hmm. thing. And, uh, and so this was not the experience I had growing up in the immigrant church. Mm-hmm. But it was the experience that I started having when my immigrant church was bringing Moody Bible Institute interns to come teach Sunday school. Yes. <laughs> and how that started to influence my understanding of Christianity, of what it meant to be a good Christian girl, uh, what my place was in the family, and then... Uh, you know, in my high school years, college years, how college ministry spaces, and then like a second gen church where most of the leaders were ironically white, mm -hmm. leading a second generation Korean American church of mostly youth, you know, high schoolers, junior high, a smattering of college students. And then we would all continue to grow up in that church and become leaders in that church and how adjacent to this white evangelical space we had become mm -hmm. and why. So for me, there was a lot of vindication, mm -hmm. quite honestly, of why it was such a tumultuous 15 years mm. of, uh, pushing and fighting and feeling like I don't belong in a space that actually uh, culturally, ethnically reflected me, but did not fit what I understood Jesus to be. And I remember having a Korean American pastor and I, we butted heads and he had said at one point, Will you follow me without any questions? And I looked at him and the table of all male Asian, well, with the exception of one, um, male elders. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't follow anyone without any question. <laughs> Even Jesus, right? Maybe Even you Jesus. Met me. Right. Like, what kind of question is that? Like, 
what? Mm-hmm. And I, I looked around and I thought, mm. oh my goodness, you all think this is okay. Yeah. And and I I remember that. And as I was reading, well, I was listening to the book, thinking that was that was the poison. Mm-hmm. Right. That was the poison of assimilation. Mm-hmm both in language and in culture, for that immigrant church that felt like it had already lost its second generation in terms of language, hoping that they were going to raise up, up in a faith. And it, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. And I still remember walking out of that elder meeting thinking, I don't know if I can follow Jesus anymore. Mm-hmm. And I know I can't follow Jesus in the context of this church. Yeah. Yeah. And and many, many people have made that, have come to that decision, yeah. right? And are in the process right now. I think that's been accelerated. Uh, I, I will say like writing this book, uh, it, it was really important to me to make whiteness visible mm-hmm. because within white evangelical communities, it almost never is, right? These ideas are just Christian. This is just biblical. This is just American. Uh, but I mean, even if you take something like Christian nationalism, right? the idea that America was a Christian nation, it was founded, you know, with God's <laughs> special blessing and things were great uh. until the 1960s, right? Just think about that. <laughs> I mean, that only... What happened in the 60s? Right, right. <laughs> so much, right? I mean, that only makes sense if you're white and if your value system is shaped by white privilege, just at the most basic mm-hmm. level. Um, and so what I what I can do as a historian is, is just kind of sketch that out and, and show how this is the case and show how things like family values are deeply connected to white supremacy historically, um, to white privilege, uh, to the authority of white parents to uh, quote-unquote protect their children at at great cost uh, to to, uh, children of color and and so on and so forth. There's just so much history there um, that I think uh, white evangelicals are often oblivious to, again, because they prefer not to see race, uh, not to Mm -hmm. uh, confront race. Whereas for anybody who is not white, so much of this is just so obvious. (laughs) And so the, the conversations are really hard to have because there's so much defensiveness and and really just ignorance on the side of white evangelicals because they have not had eyes to see. And, and that, of course, is privilege. Um, but what I, I'll also add that, um, although this is a, a predominantly white religious and cultural movement, it has had enormous uh, influence over non-white traditions just because of its dominance, um, not just in the United States, but also globally. And, uh, you know, since this book has come out, it's it's gotten a lot of global coverage. Um, So national media coverage in China and Japan and Australia and Brazil and the Netherlands and Germany and UK. So it's, it's out there. And I've been getting letters from Christian leaders in these countries who are are sharing sharing harrowing stories, um, mm-hmm. also in Kenya, uh, of of how this particular ideology, these teachings, John Piper, James Dobson, Mark Driscoll, how they were exported for decades. And how they ended up shaping global Christian communities and some of the implications look exactly like they do here in terms of sexual abuse, abuse of power. And so it really is devastating. This does have a global kind of imperial reach. 
When I, um, when I was in high school, uh, I went to Summit Ministries in Colorado, which was this uh, worldview training thing for fundamentalist Christians. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Dobson came during the second week. Yeah. In fact, Ryan was there as uh-huh. one of the uh, participants. But one of my favorite moments from the week, uh, and I was like 15, okay? But uh, Dr. Dobson did this talk about men and women in marriage. And one of the things he said was... For 15-year-olds. For, well, yeah. I mean, we're all high schoolers, <laughs> so there were a couple that were old. Yeah, sure. very important to be talking about marriage at 15. Well, oh yes, God. exactly. Uh, well, so one of the things he says is... Uh, if you uh, are going to be like a good man in a marriage, that a healthy marriage, you should be having sex at least three times a week, <laughs> which was this number that just seemed kind of pulled out of nowhere. Uh, it's a biblical number. Come on. <laughs> Trinity. One kid, one kid raises his hand. Dr. Dobson calls on him. Uh, yeah. What, what is it? And the kid says, how many times a week do you and Shirley have sex? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> amazing. Like everyone was hysterically laughing and um dr dobson of course like i think you know as a 15 year old looking at dr dobson too you were like he's probably not ever having sex um and then he goes i don't really think that's an appropriate question oh and it was like everybody was talking about it afterwards what? Like, well, so this guy who's the expert on healthy relationships can't tell us if his is healthy or not mm-hmm. like yeah it was really interesting kind of um well you see all the things in there right like yeah. Three times a week, you better have sex. Is that out of scripture somewhere? Like, I, I don't remember oh, it. Oh, man. Uh, and then, like, the the kind of hypocritical inability to say, well, I'm living by this thing I'm teaching you, uh, that teaching it to children, like, all these things are all mixed up together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sex is really at the at – the at the core of much of this. It's, uh, mm. I was surprised going back to, you know, already in the sixties, the popularity of evangelical sex manuals. Of, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I had some fun Where reading. Those? <laughs> <laughs> These things are selling like crazy and, mm. you know, in deeply oh, formative, again, in terms of like where people's values come from, how many evangelicals haven't, like you said, you know, youth, youth conference, let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about sex. Let's, you know, purity culture. Um, these, these guides to healthy sexuality, you know, quote unquote healthy. It, it really is toxic. Uh, because what's at the, at the heart of these is this idea of gender difference. Uh, God created men and women very, very differently. God filled men with testosterone. So they are naturally aggressive, uh, as God designed and they have the this insatiable sex drive. So that's where women come in. They need to be very modest uh, if they are not married so as not to, not to tempt men all on them because boys will be boys and women who are married must fulfill their God-given requirement is to fulfill their husband's expansive sexual needs, right? And this is just the framework and it is, it is just taught for generations. So women are told you need to be attractive. You need to be sexy. You need to be submissive. You need to be sweet and so, so feminine. Um, and, you know, in the home, in the bedroom, in your relationship, do not challenge his ego. You need to prop it up and meet all of his needs. You can see where this is going. And, and, um, and this is where we end up with, not just abuse, but with entire communities of quote unquote, good, respectable Christians who cannot call out abuse, who end up repeatedly blaming 
the victims who end up blaming even young girls. They must have seduced a man. Uh, and and for giving men a pass, because again, boys will be boys. Uh, what can you really expect? Uh, so really seeing this history, tracing this history was utterly devastating. That last chapter of the book that, that uh, really uh, traces this case by case Mm-hmm. was brutal, brutal to write. Every time I edited it, I just had to brace myself. I hated that, but I knew that needed to be a part of the story. And and that really came, came home to me in the fall of 2016, in the week after the Access Hollywood tape released. That's when I saw, mm-hmm. you know, they were, they were cool with uh, uh, candidate Trump, uh, you know, on camera confessing to sexually assaulting women. And of course they would be because this was a pattern we'd seen for, for generations. Um, I think that's, oh, go ahead, Matt. No, no, you go. I was going to, I was going to transition. So if you want to, okay. Um, I think that's actually a really interesting way to segue into, uh, your chapter entitled Holy Balls. Uh, (laughs) when, when we do, author interviews on the show, we like to kind of do a deep dive into one chapter rather than try to cover the whole book just as a way to entice our readers a little bit. Um, So this is about post 9-11 evangelicals. Uh, I remember I used to be a big fan of the Catalyst Conference, uh, which is uh, connected with Andy Stanley and uh, founded by some guys from Liberty University. Um, And I remember the year that that, that sort of broke me was a year that they uh, were bringing in Cornell West. And I was so excited. I was like, I I can't believe that they're bringing in Cornell West, but I, I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> then it turned out they got some pushback from some quote unquote significant donors, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so they reduced uh, Dr. West's uh, platform into a pre-recorded video interview about how great Martin Luther King Jr. is. Oh. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> which he is yes uh, but, but, <laughs> but. Um, and the the uh, biggest the, the biggest objection that I heard other than Cornell West being a socialist blah 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 Marxist blah 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 was that uh, Cornell West had used the n-word to describe America mm. and I was like that's weird I wonder where that came from. So I went, you know, went to the Google machine and, and for those did some who are listening. Cornell West, uh, it, he is African-American. That's He's right. That's right. Man. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it was because, uh, he was giving a talk about, uh, uh America post nine 11. And he said that, uh, for nine 11 for, uh, was the inwardization of white America. Mm-hmm. So a little earlier when you were talking about why, people are so attracted to this ideology. You said it's about people who feel vulnerable or don't feel as powerful as they should. I thought it was really profound that you located this sort of, uh, what do we want to call it? Uh, circling of the patriarchal wagons around uh, patriarchy uh, by all of these disparate theological, uh, theologically minded folks in the wake of 9-11. Yeah. Uh, because I think, again, particularly for white male Americans, this was a an event that made us feel exposed and vulnerable and powerless. Yeah. Well, first off, that Cornell West story is fascinating. And 
I can say that. I actually had a similar thing happen uh, that, you know, speaking engagement, everything seemed great and then push back. And can you do a pre-recorded message instead, please? And maybe a little shorter. And yeah, so I... Just something we could edit if we need exactly. to. Exactly. double my speaking fee, I would be glad. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so it's nice to know I'm in good company there. Uh, so yes, the... Um, let me preface this um, before we get to post 9-11 by uh, looking at the 1990s so briefly, um, right? That's the promise keepers era. That's when evangelical men's movement really, you know, caught the nation's attention and it you know, horrified, understandably, uh, liberal feminists <laughs> and, and such at the time. Who are these guys and what are they doing on the National Mall? But um in fact, like the 1990s were this time of experimentation, openness. Yes, there was patriarchy, but it was more of a quote unquote soft patriarchy. Yes, we liked <laughs> warrior masculinity, but let's have tender warriors and uh, racial reconciliation. Let's give that a go. Um, so really a lot was up for grabs. The Cold War was over. These these kind of old truths were, were thrown up in the air and it was a time of a lot of experimentation. Uh, that said... Um, I think that, uh, or, or what we can see is over the course of the 90s, a kind of backlash against the um, this experimentation, this openness, even moving in the direction of egalitarianism. Uh, you, you see conservatives really trying to double down on, okay, the Cold War is over, but guess what? There's a culture war. We need to fight this culture war. We need, we've gone too far over to the softness. You don't want tenderness in the trenches. And so you already see that pendulum swinging back. And that's why in 2001, before 9-11, you have the publication of John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, Doug Wilson's oh, yes. Future Men, and James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys. And all of them are absolutely swinging this pendulum back. Um, it's anti-feminist, uh, anti-soft anything. And we need to <sighs> toughen up American boys. We need to toughen up Christian men. Uh, enough of this. And those are already on the shelves. And then 9-11 happens. And that's when they just, you know, become these massive bestsellers. And they really do end up changing the zeitgeist of American evangelicalism, but of America more generally, I think, as well. I, I remember being really confused when Wild at Heart came out because everyone was reading this book. And, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so they were flying him in from Colorado to speak at things. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone kept talking about how it was about this new muscular masculinity. And I was like, this guy quotes poetry constantly and is like crying at sunrises. <laughs> like, why are we not talking about that? Right, right. Like, I don't understand. Right. Um, and, and it was a really weird thing that it seemed like everyone was pulling out this kind of adventure, that piece of it, yes. and not and not even getting the whole of even who John Eldridge was. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's indebted to this mythopoetic movement, this more therapeutic right. tradition, but that's not really where people take it, right? They, they, right, they grab right. onto the muscular rock climbing toughness. Every man needs a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. And, you know, let's go fight our battles. And that's, that's yeah. really where it goes in the two thousands. And, you know, it's interesting to think without 9-11, would it have, have, have taken that course or would mm -hmm. it have petered out? Would it have, would it have, you know, led more men to read poetry? Uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. <laughs> it, there was a, a resurgence of the salt, uh, right? There was a, there was a women's book, right? Captivating. That was, yes. Oh yes. Okay. So 
you know, I'm, I'm a little silent here in part because this is where I don't connect, right, with white evangelicalism. These were not I had students, so I was in campus ministry at the time. So I did have students who were reading these books. Mm-hmm. I personally was like, why? What? Captivate? Ew. Yeah. <laughs> um, never did, sorry to uh, Sister Beth Moore, never did any of her Bible uh-huh. studies. Never led a woman's group um, doing her studies. And yet I would have non-white students asking about those things. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, why? Why Why are we reading this? Well, one, because there's not a lot out there other than yeah. what was being produced. Yeah. Um, and a hunger to identify and fit in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part of it as an author is walking into this space that has been so dominated by white men and white women. And knowing off the bat, uh, my book is going to sell not even a fraction <laughs> of the worst of those books, right? And and even in the pitching of the book, being asked, like, who are the authors of influence who will sign off on your book and have you on their podcasts or promote the book for you. And this feeling of this is not Christianity. This is industry. This is capitalism cloaked in very religious language. And so it doesn't matter so long as any author has friends in powerful places who will be willing to have you on their stage which doesn't matter anymore. Thank you, 2020. Um, but even still, right, it, it is so fascinating to watch. And I've, I appreciated you putting those pieces together, pointing not only to race, pointing hey, to Kathy. the whiteness of it all, but then also connecting it to the money. Because we can talk about power in these vague terms, but really the political power and social power is money. I mean, everything you just said, Kathy, is is absolutely right on, right? How how power works, how power is distributed, how uh, the role that money plays in all of this. Uh, so early on in this research project, yeah, I was trying to figure out what is evangelicalism really? And it, it's not just about, you know, the Bevington definition or, uh, you know, theological beliefs or not. And it's not just about race. It, it's really about these networks and uh, how the networks are connected and how power flows, power and opportunity flows uh, along these networks. And so, um, it, you know, Christian publishing, distributions, who's blurbing whose book, who gets who gets a chance to write a book, who gets to market, all of this. So early on, I had some fabulous research assistants, and we had these big pe- pieces of butcher paper up in my office with sticky notes mm-hmm. with um, names of individuals and organizations, and we had Sharpies just connecting them through webs of influence, webs of support. And, and that really was um, key to, that's the scaffolding behind this book, right? There's this 
this whole culture that operates. And what's really interesting is talking with you all, you're, you're kind of insiders or one foot inside and one out. Just this morning, I was giving an interview um, to a Berkeley radio station. <laughs> let me just say, they're like, who are these people? This is like <laughs> all new to us. And it's, that's how a subculture works, right? Anybody right. on the inside, oh, you know exactly how it works. Um, for those on the outside, it's completely invisible. Uh, yeah, can, go ahead. Can I ask Kristen, like, I, I think we've seen, there, there are these weird coalitions you don't expect, like Doug Wilson being brought into the mainstream for a time yes. or, or the mainstream coming to Doug Wilson, one or the other. Yes. Uh, and then we see like Mark Driscoll and John MacArthur, which is, mm. seems like a really weird pairing, uh, like really loving each other for a while <laughs> and then separating even before Driscoll had his big public flame out because of a disagreement about, you know, uh, do, do gifts of the spirit exist? Yeah. Uh, and we see these places where when power, people focus on power, come together for a time, but when it looks like there's going to be a conflict of power, they separate again. Like, yeah. is it? can we just ignore all of this until it implodes or is it just going to keep gaining strength? Like what, what is, how do we deal with this maybe as part of the question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and John MacArthur is, is the trickiest one, honestly, he's just so yeah. curmudgeonly and, and he kind of operates in his own universe. So, right. so he's, For he's sure. a tricky one to, to kind of follow through the two thousands. Uh, but in general, what, what we see are alliances being formed across significant theological differences, including speaking in tongues, the gifts of the spirit and so on. As long as you're towing the line on uh, patriarchy, on patriarchal power, on gender traditionalism, and um, uh, sexuality, right? That that's kind of these new how how the alliances are formed, and those are the alliances that that are held. And um, one of the huge dilemmas that I faced researching and writing this book was trying to figure out what's what's fringe and what's mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, so early on, I had no intention of including Bill Gothard in this book. None. <laughs> right, he is so fringe, I thought. And then everybody I was talking to kept saying, you are going to include Gothard, right? People I had no clue who just seemed like totally, you know, normal mainstream evangelicals deeply influenced by Gothard's teachings in their home, um, their upbringings. And so many told me, you got to do Gothard, that finally I was like, okay, let me look at Gothard. And what I saw was that, yes, Gothard was fringe. Yes, he was extreme, although influential. Um, but then I, I, I set him against James Dobson. And Dobson, uh, really, when, when you boil things down, is saying things that align very closely to what Bill Gothard is saying about patriarchal authority, about hierarchy and submission. And, and so that's really a thread that I end up tracing through. And Doug Wilson is just this great example of, you know, Doug Wilson is fringe. Uh, he would he would not want to be uh, you know considered anything but fringe. He takes pride in that. Even so, he moves very close to the mainstream. You know, he gets a platform at Christianity Today. He gets the endorsement of folks like Piper. And, you know, this guy, no, he's not racist. How could you think he's racist? He's a brother in Christ. And that's the stuff that I really wanted to look at. This, you know, what, what disqualifies you from these communities? What gets Nothing. you excluded? Well, you know, talk to Rachel Held Evans or talk to Rob Bell right. and they can give you that, right? But, yeah. you know, pretty, pretty 
Um, blatant racism. No, still brother in Christ. We're on the same side here. Abuse, same side still. And so I really wanted to pay attention to how those boundaries were drawn, who was drawing them, and on what terms. And that that's really, I think, um, a, a theme of this book was just trying to tease those the, tease out those boundaries and who had the power to draw them. Wow. I wish we could see that uh, map, yeah. the, the, the web that was created, uh, because even in the last, I'd say, few years, um, as I've, with my own book, learning about this, this subculture that mm-hmm. I thought I understood, right? I was in campus ministry for 20 yeah. years, yeah. and still it was like, I had never heard of this conference. Yeah. I had no idea who these people are. I had no idea they all knew each other mm-hmm. or that so-and-so funded this conference that Matt launched this other thing. So um, so I, I wish maybe in the next edition you could <laughs> include like in the back of the book, like a map. Oh, that would be, that's a great right? idea. It's too late for the next edition. But yes. yeah, I mean, I did take pictures of my butcher paper yes. before I threw it out. Yes. Finally, I was going to ask, yeah. Years. yeah. If you had like the the detect, the classic detective like yarn and pen wall that where you're tracking the serial killer, you know? That would be amazing because I, I think that there is also that. So it's hearing the information, reading the information, but then also to visualize what this looks like mm-hmm. and visually see this is not the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> this is about where's the money? Yeah. Where's the power? Where's the influence? And how is it all connected to one another? Um, I sound a little bit like a conspiracy theorist, but it's I mean that <laughs> well that's but kind of the reality. Uh, Kristen, you bring up the the group that is the subject of that Netflix uh, docuseries, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. the, the family, yeah. right? Which again, when you're watching that, you're like, was this made by conspiracy theorists? <laughs> no, like it's just, it feels that way though. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there's, there, there are all these, these uh, kind of alliances and some of them are visible. I'll say that in this book, I, I, I really only scratched the surface and, you know, there are so many other conferences, so many other people, so many other mm-hmm. authors and books. And I mean, my editor, uh, who is from entirely outside this, um, tradition. And I, sh- I should say, uh, Kathy, I mean, you're talking about your own experience, your own writing and, and what you learned through, um, kind of publishing and encountering this, this subculture. I made a very intentional choice to go absolutely outside of of this world in order to write this book to publish this book so Mm -hmm. i went with the secular trade press um, because i knew i needed the freedom to write Mm -hmm. this book in this way um and and (laughs) at a certain point he just said do we really need to know about all of these guys yes (laughs) And (laughs) and i was like yes and and so I had to I take I took so many out. There are so many more. And and there are some that really bug me that they're not in there. Like, oh, and Strayan, he like he didn't make the final cut. And now I'm like, oh, he really needed to be in there too. But he just I just can't fit anymore. Um, so so this is just scratching the surface. Um, but I, I do think this is how we need to to think about evangelicalism as a series of networks and alliances and look at who's drawing the boundaries to what ends. And, um, and like you said, this isn't, this isn't the gospel, this is business, 
But the, the, the power here mm-hmm. is that this is packaged as gospel truth. Yes. This is packaged as Orthodox Christianity and millions of Christian consumers are, are consuming it as gospel truth. And that's where the power really is. Mm. <sighs> well, you know, speaking of that, uh, we uh, on Twitter yesterday, Jessica Hooten Wilson asked us, um, how do we get how do we get those folks to read this book? <laughs> and I'm I'm genuinely curious, one, if you have thoughts about that, but then two, also like how has the response been, especially because the book has been getting uh so much well-deserved attention? Um, like what's the ratio of hate mail to people saying, like, oh my gosh, I thought I was crazy, but yes. it turns out other people think like me. You know what I mean? Oh, it is it it's shocking to me, honestly. I've received hundreds of letters now from people saying, uh, yes, this is a story of my life. Uh, thank you. Thank you for this. I thought I was crazy. My life now makes sense. <laughs> my family makes sense. Uh, I, I, I really, I get several a day still. Um, and, and each one is, is just gorgeous and some of them heart wrenching and, um, and people just sharing their stories as they map onto this, this larger story in terms of hate mail. Um, <laughs> I'm a little afraid to say this. Uh, I, I don't want to encourage any, but I, I think I've gotten uh, less than a handful of okay. critical, uh, as in like three or four, um, which isn't to say there there's not any trolling out there, but you have to go into some kind of dark corners to find it. So, and I, I actually very intentionally don't go there. Um, so no, it has, it's been shocking the reception of this book, particularly among evangelicals themselves. Uh, I realized that the, the subtitle could be slightly off-putting that how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Interestingly, uh, I've also heard from conservative evangelicals themselves thanking me for that corrupted a faith part of the subtitle mm-hmm. um, because it it says that this is not the essence of Christianity. And I mean, the, the book is a work of history, but that's my little theological claim, right? As, mm-hmm. as a Christian myself, that's my, okay, white evangelicals, you say you believe in the Bible. L- let, let's let's talk in those terms for just a moment here, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, so I'm happy that even that um, kind of um, uh, maybe sharp elbowed is the way one reviewer described it, uh, sharp elbowed critique um, has been has been received with with remarkable humility and openness and curiosity by so many people that I would not have anticipated hearing that from. So how can you get people to read it? I don't know. There's just the Jesus and John Wayne part of the title that might <laughs> get it into their hands. Right. Um, or, you Send know, it with a like, gift wrap around the subtitle. So they can't exactly, exactly. Or, you know, there's the whole, well, you know, how tough are you? Are you, you should be tough enough to handle Ooh. this. So, you know, whatever works. <laughs> wow. That'll do it. Well, it's encouraging to hear that people have been receptive. Uh, and I will sit here and I, I, I will wait to see if reception actually means anything changes, right? Because I think, um, you know, we just finished elections and votes are still being counted, I guess, or recounted. And um, that the number, you know, white, white evangelicals still showed up for Mm -hmm. Trump Mm -hmm. and, and found a few more. (laughs) And, and this happened long before 2016, as you well documented, and the influence is deep and it's global. Um, so 
while I thoroughly and enjoyed isn't really the right <laughs> word, right? But it it was <laughs> and it it was important to hear and listen and read. Uh, I sit here and go, well, let's see what happens, yeah. you know, with all of those who um, have some power. Yeah. Because we all have power. We all have influence. Um, what that actually will mean. Because uh, 2020 has kind of been a repeat, if not more yeah. so. Yeah. On the implications of what happened in 2016. And then you add the layer of COVID and, yeah. uh, and how that continues to impact communities of color, Black, Brown, um, more than white communities and how the church then fights the fight to gather in large numbers. Yeah. So we shall see. We shall see. Yes. I, I also, when I finished this book was not optimistic. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> was one of the last things my editor said, it was like, uh, with the, with the conclusion, he made it all the way through the manuscript and just said, can you give us any hope, Kristen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I I thought for about a day or two, and I wrote back and was like, I don't think I can. I'm mm-hmm. as I'm as depressed as you are here. Like I find no reason to hope at this point. And he's like, okay, I respect that. Yeah. And then the and then the next day, or maybe two days later, he wrote back again. Could you just give us something, Kristen? <laughs> are you sure? And, and that's when I wrote the last <laughs> sentence of the book. Um, right, it, that mm. what was once done can also be undone. And it honestly felt far too feeble at the time. And he's like, okay, I'll take it. (laughs) So, so I am also not, when I finished this book was not hopeful and that's all I could muster. And there's truth there. Like once you see how this came to be, you understand it was not inevitable. Once you see who was making decisions and to what ends, I think it is empowering to, to, um, to take a stand against those, to say, is this really what we meant? Is this really where we want to be? Um, But at the same time, you know, this is so deeply embedded. And that really was my my takeaway. I think very early on when I started writing this book, I thought maybe I can change some minds. And then within months, I realized I can't. All right. This mm-hmm. is instead I can just tell the story. I can testify to what has happened. And I have absolutely no control over over what will happen next. Well, and and I think back to your thesis statement, right? Like when when uh, when the criminal justice system in the United States fails persons of color, uh, activists remind us uh, it's not that the system is broken, yeah. right? It's that the system is functioning the way it was designed to function. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point here, right? When evangelicals turned out for Trump in uh, numbers that were higher than any other demographic, yes. It's uh, people were going, what, ha- what's wrong with evangelicalism? And your point is there's nothing wrong with evangelicalism. Right. It's functioning. Well, there's nothing. <laughs> it's functioning the way it was designed to function. Yeah. Right. Like this was a system that was built to put someone like Donald Trump in power. Exactly. Um, now there's something wrong with that, but it's not that there's, it's not that something went wrong inside the machine. The machine is actually functioning nearly perfectly. Exactly. Um, we could say at 80, 81% efficiency. Yes. Um, yes. So uh, I, I think that is an important thing to recognize is that there's going to need to be a dismantling and a repenting, not a tweaking and a, uh, you know, massaging. Exactly. Exactly. 
Uh, so we're, we've been doing this thing, Kristen, where we try to keep our shows under an hour. And obviously we blew way past that a long time ago. So, uh, since, since we're, since we're past our time, uh, I, I genuinely am curious to know, uh, as you finished this behemoth of a project, uh, like what did your self-care look like? I'm assuming you had to do self-care throughout the project, but hopefully you did something uh, once it was finished uh, because I can't, I honestly can't imagine uh, how taxing it was to bring this into the public space. Oh, I am terrible at self-care. I am just absolutely terrible. So no, I don't have any lovely story yeah. I could tell. Um, it, it was it was grueling to write this. And I was under this uh, incredible deadline, of course, to get it out months before the 2020 election. And so I wrote the entire manuscript start to finish in 18 months, which was a lot. I could only have done that with the help of my three fabulous research assistants. And honestly, they were kind of therapy for me. We were a mutual support group as we were working through this um, this material together. Um, so shout out to my research assistants there. Um, but but honestly, it felt it felt cathartic to write this book. Um, the, the last chapter, accepting, right? That was just brutal, um, as I mentioned. But the book itself, it felt, you know, I've been watching this. I've been bumping up against this uh, since I came of age, really. And to be able to just plot this out, um, to be able to just hold this up for all to see, it felt really empowering and it, it did feel cathartic. So I guess I guess that was uh, what drove me. Uh, and I, I still haven't really caught my breath since the book has released. So I, I need to do better with that whole self-care thing. Well, you're on the right podcast it, uh, and none of us are very good at it. So, <laughs> Awesome. Um, Kristen, uh, where, where can people find you online? If they want to uh, ask you something, if they want more information, if they want to find the book, where, where can they follow you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at KK Dumez. That's at K-K-D-U-M-E-Z, like Dumez. I also have a Facebook author page, KK Dumez or Kristen Kobus Dumez. And I'm very active in both of those spaces. And I have a website, KristenDumez.com, where I post most of my interviews and, uh, and writings. Awesome. Thank you so much. I just followed you yesterday on Twitter, by the way. And I was reading a bunch of your tweets before I did. And I was like, this person's a good follow. So um, I have fun out there. Yeah. So Kristen, we have one other podcast co-host who is uh, doing a three day seminar and couldn't be here today, but he loves hockey. And so at your recommendation on Twitter, I bought him for his birthday slash Christmas, that hockey book that oh. you tweeted about a few days ago. <laughs> so no one tell Clay, no one tell him. Yeah. Yeah. That's Spoilers. Bruce Berglund's the fastest game in the world. Shout out. It's going to be great. He's going to love it, I'm sure. So thank you. Thank you in advance. Awesome. Uh, speaking of that, we we uh, always close our show with an episode, a segment we call What's Fascinating Us, Us This Week, where we all offer some some sort of pop culture something uh, for our guests to uh, enjoy. And we'd love to invite you to do that. Um, and since we spring it on you, we always uh, let our hosts or our guests go last. So, okay. uh, Kathy, I'm curious what uh, you're calling out for our listeners this week. Yes. So... Uh, I am calling out Attack on Titan. Ooh. It is. Yes. Have you? The, what? Uh, so the we series. are watching the series. Oh. So it is based on a manga. 
Have you watched it, Matt? Jay? Uh, yeah, I watched the movie. Okay, so we're watching the series. I know that there was a movie. I understand from uh, Peter's deep dive, uh, someone has a U.S. something something has bought the rights, and there might be a remake. Whatever. Uh, But we are watching the anime series. (laughs) And so anime manga is not uh, a genre that I am familiar with, Mm. except for the fact that my boys, when they were younger, fell in love with Bleach. Oh. Also a manga series. So, uh, and uh, this came about. In my many, many hours of driving from home to the U of I to Iowa State, back home, all in one day, lots of conversation with my two sons about what we were going to binge watch together as a family. And they chose <laughs> and this, Attack on Titan. This was Elias's request. He, he <laughs> asked, he's like, Mom, I know you watch other things. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't get them to watch West Wing with me last summer. And he was like, would you watch this anime series with me? I'm like, of course, because if this is going to get me hours of time next to you, yes, absolutely. So it has been hours. <laughs> he, did he tell you before or after that there was a giant with no skin in it? <laughs> he did tell me, he was like, well, there are these giants, but they're not really giants. And But he also, you know, we've watched lots of television together, so he knows I'm, I'm okay with a lot of things. Uh-huh. Um, I was so confused for a while there. Um, so both boys have watched, Elias has watched all of it. Corbin has watched most of it. Um, and now Peter and I are on, we're finishing up season three. So it involves uh, sort of giants, humanoids, lots of walls. So if you're into, you know, building walls <laughs> to keep out enemies, this is your anime. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the revenge, um, unrequited love a little bit there. Um, revenge, love, walls. Who, right? What's not <laughs> to love? Administration. What's, yeah. Eating, eating people. So, mm. yeah. So if you're into like Walking Dead, there's a little bit of that. Um, but we're just hitting the part around power. Well, no, it's all about power, but a little bit about royalty and religion and how that plays into the belief system here. So I thought, hey, this is the perfect, fascinating item. So we're watching, and apparently I'm supposed to pay attention because season four, there's a new animation company. So we're also going to talk about that. How visually do we prefer one over the other? So Attack on Titan, I believe it's on Netflix, but we're watching it on Crunchyroll, which also, yeah, that's a new thing for me, but thank goodness I have... A hip eighteen-year-old who was like, yeah, crunch, crunch, Crunchyroll, and I was like, subscribe to Crunchyroll, right? I was like, Crunchyroll, isn't that something we order? To eat? <laughs> yes, every yes, month. it is. So yeah. Uh, so Matt, I'm sure your pick is very similar to Attack on Titan. I mean, I guess there's it's on television. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this is an older HBO series that's not on the air anymore, and I just started it a few weeks ago. It's called The Leftovers. Hmm. Um, it is based on a novel by Tom Parada, the first season especially. But the idea of it is uh, something like 
the rapture happens. 2% of the Earth's population disappears on one day all at the same moment. Uh, but they're not all Christian. They're not all good people. It's children. It's old people. It's mass murderers. It's It, it, it appears to be completely random. Uh, and the story is really about the entire world going through trauma and then trying to cope. Uh, and it is focused on one family, focused <laughs> on a family. Um, so you know that you're um, where, uh, it, the, the, the father and husband is a, uh, he's a police chief. His wife has left the family to join this cult. His son or his stepson actually has disappeared, but is still alive, but disappeared. And then his daughter is just falling apart in real time in his home. And of course he is too. Uh, and then so they they all move into these other stories, really interesting, and I think honestly really beautiful stories about uh, the importance of human beings, the uh, how we deal, how we cope with trauma, and the importance of love and forgiveness and uh, family in a really, I mean, a super, super compelling kind of action package where they and they play real coy with like does the supernatural exist like all these people disappeared that happened but beyond that like there's people prophesying and there's church people having crises because why didn't i get taken and like all these things and they play it all straight like like the real world like you're just like i'm not sure if that's true or not like what's happening so i've loved it i've been really deeply moved by it to the point that i actually wrote one of the uh screenwriters this week just to say I thank you for changing the world. Like, yeah, really beautiful. So that's called The Leftovers. You can watch that on HBO. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, as a lot of our listeners know, I have been dungeon mastering in during pandemic. And for those of us who are Dungeons and Dragons fans, uh, a big new update to the fifth edition came out this past week, which is called Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And the way the way Dungeons and Dragons does updates is by releasing new books of uh, rule modifications, spells, weapons, all that kind of stuff. So it's been fun. Uh, I've my parties that uh, that I'm DMing for. I kind of let everyone know, hey, Tasha's is out. It's fair game now. Go for it. And so people have been uh, modifying their characters and doing stuff. And and one of the really interesting things that has happened is in in this new update uh they have changed how races in dungeons and dragons work and it's it's really as a way to try to become more racially equitable mm. in the sense that they want fantasy play to still be just and and considerate so previously in dungeons and dragons if you were an orc say there were specific racial things that you had like you had a strength bonus or stuff like that um and they've taken that away because they again they've recognized that like just because you belong to a certain race doesn't mean that you're going to be stereotyped that way and so they wanted to give players more freedom to create characters that had a, a broader range and depth and apparently that's just like the beginning of a lot of the modifications to the race system that D&D has employed since they started it yeah it's it's a really cool kind of a thing and I'm interested to see where it all goes um, but yeah, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. If you're a D&D fan, you might want to pick it up, check it out. It's got a lot of cool new stuff in it. Cool. How about you, Kristen? You got any, uh, anything? I do. 
It's, yes. Um, oh, let's hear it. <laughs> so over the holiday weekend, I sat down and watched my first Hallmark movie all the way through. <gasps> <laughs> was it the one, one with the white woman and the guy <laughs> right, right. who ended up it falling was, in love? I just went, um, so I installed the app and subscribed and I went with the most popular and it was a Christmas wedding. It was the one that popped up and wow. uh, it was beyond my wildest dreams and i felt like how how, <laughs> I mean, how could i not how, how would i not actually seen one before because i knew exactly everything about this within the first minute yeah. and so it was marvelous and so what's fascinating to me and full disclosure this is um part of my next book project uh so Woo-hoo. hallmark movies will be a part and um what, what's fascinating to me is that al moeller came out this week and condemned hallmark movies and <laughs> What? Yeah. Yes. Why? Um, uh, because they're advancing the gay yes. agenda, basically. Because there's now a, a gay. Yeah. Co- I have not yet seen the one starring a gay couple, but yes, oh. yes. It's called a gay Christmas play. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Don. We now are gay apparel. Man. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the songs for sure. So oh, okay. yes, I'm obsessed, and I I cannot wait to uh, uh, to unpack all of this. Oh my gosh! Wow. So, so they had a gay couple before they had one black person in it. Oh, so that's the, that's the really <laughs> funny thing. Um, in this one that I watched, there were there were black characters, people with not white skin, but who are essentially white people. Like they're all like they're all oh, white yeah. people, um, and it makes no sense to have you know this African American pastor who has served a church in rural California for 30, 40 years, right? Be this black guy, but yes. <laughs> So, so race in, will, will be a part of my analysis. I can say that much. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That is just. I have a confession. I've never watched any of these Hallmark <laughs> Christmas movies. I feel I like. I have a confession. <laughs> have you? Well, yeah. So last year, the first oh, year I right. did my bad movie birthday. That's right. That's right. Um, that was the one. I, I had to watch a Godwink Christmas Mm. Where I thought that I thought that Godwink was like a character's <laughs> last name, but actually, no, Godwink is a term that they were trying to make happen where a coincidence that benefits you is oh. something that God does and God is winking at you. And I wanted, I, yeah, I wanted to punch myself in the face. Though. I mean, I yeah. think that part is true. God's definitely not watching these movies for um, sure. I started watching them last year. Well, apparently Al Mohler has two, so you're in good company. <laughs> I know, me and Al Mohler. I don't know that Al Mohler watches or reads the things he condemns, though, so I'm not sure that's true. That is possible. Oh, fascinating. Well, we'll have to have you back, Kristen. For sure. Yeah, yes. yeah, it, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. All right. Well, Kristen, thank you again so much for being with us. This has been an incredibly interesting episode. And again, folks, the book, Jesus and John Wayne, is terrific. It is terrific. It is terrific in the sense that you will need a friend when you're finished with it. And probably as you move through each chapter. Just be strong. (laughs) You need a friend. Man up and read it. Go punch something. Yeah, uh, I I did want to punch a lot of things as I read it. It's true. So, um, yeah, it it is terrific. Again, Kristen, thank you so much. It, it's it is a real gift that I know was not was not cheap for you to produce in so many ways. So thank you. Oh, so much thank you, it. thank you for having me here.
this has been episode number 278, Jesus and John Wayne. Our guest has been Dr. Kristen Kobes dumay uh, We will be back next week with another great episode. Uh, Matt, who are we interviewing next week? Uh, next week, we're having a new friend of mine. He's a screenwriter named Dan Hernandez. Uh, he's best known for, he was the producer and writer on Detective Pikachu, and he's worked on the TV shows The Tick, One Day at a Time, and a variety of other shows. So I think you'll all really enjoy him. He's a great guy, and he's really uh, funny. How many Hallmark Christmas movies has he written? I don't know that he's written any, but I think we could ask him So then him he's that. a nobody. He might have done it under another <laughs> name. All right. Well, that's next week. Uh, thanks again, folks. Uh, stay home if you can. Keep wearing your masks if you can't. And take care of yourselves and take care of one another. Bye.